Hello, this is Paul Harbottle, and this week, the first of a two-part um, look at Albert Jacker, we're going to have a look and see how he won his VC at Gallipoli. Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. Now when I was a young man, I carried me pack And I lived the free life on the rover From the Murray's Green Basin to the dusty outback Well I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 my country said, son, it's time you stop rambling, there's work to be done. So they gave me a tin hat, and they gave me a gun. And they marched me away to the war. Albert Jacker was born on the 10th of January, 1893, at Layard near Winchelsea, Victoria. Fourth child to Nathaniel Jacker, a Victorian-born labourer, later a farmer and a contractor. The family moved to Wedderburn when Albert was five. After elementary schooling, Bert, as he was called, worked as a labourer with his father, then for the Victorian State Forest Department. He was a shy youth, but excelled at sports and especially cycling. When the war came, Albert enlisted on the 18th of September 1914. He was posted to the 14th Battalion, which embarked overseas for active service. Albert enlisted on the 18th of September 1914. He was posted to the 14th Battalion, where he embarked for overseas service on the 22nd of December 1914 and arrived in Alexandria, Egypt on the 31st of the January 1915. While training in Egypt, Jacker was put on two charges by a Sergeant Cowrie, for which he was awarded one day's default of pay. I'm not entirely sure what he, uh, <laughs> he did, but uh, after going through some of the articles and, and, and reading some of the, the things, I was able to glean from his personality that uh, he wasn't a diplomatic man and tended to not um, suffer fools lightly, so to speak. So I imagine he probably said something about it. The actual offence isn't recorded in the 14th Battalion's unit roll book. On the 11th of April, 
the battalion packed up their tents for Mudros Harbour on Lemnos Island, which was a Greek island just off the Turkish coast, arriving there on the 15th of April. Let's just have a quick talk about the Gallipoli campaign. Well, first of all, I guess before anything else, why did they have it? Why, why did they have to invade down there? Well, it's pretty simple, really. The Russians had a port at Sevastopol, uh, and they were under attack from the Turks, who uh, held Constantinople, and so the Russians couldn't actively get out from their warm water port and so the Black Sea was completely closed off. So the British and the French decided, well, they're going to have to do something about it. So what they did was, the first idea that uh, they had was from none other than good old Winston Churchill, when he came up with a plan to force the Dardanelles, and what that entailed was to get older British and French battleships and cruisers uh, that were no longer uh, first-tier uh, vessels, but they were still good enough for knocking out uh, gun emplacements on shore batteries and things like that. So, from the Mediterranean side, they decided to work their way up through the Dardanelles. Well, long story short, they all but uh, achieved what they were after. However, the French lost a ship and the British lost two ships, all in a very short period of time. And the Commodore of the, the fleet, well, he kind of balked at it and decided to pull out and pull back to a safe position but unfortunately little did he know that he'd, he'd achieved what he wanted to do in that all they had was there was 14 long guns uh, in all of the uh, emplacements along, on, along the Turkish side and along the Gallipoli Peninsula side and that all expended their ammunition so they could have just kept sailing through but they were very badly spooked by mines uh, and the mine layers couldn't go forward unless they knew that they'd knocked out all the gun emplacements and the gun emplacements had expended all their ammunition so <laughs> they could have sailed up there and took their time and worked their way up the Dardanelles and gone straight on to Constantinople and sat out in open water and essentially demand a surrender to Constantinople and knock them out of the war which would have allowed the Russians to be able to come across through the Black Sea, not have to go through the Carpathian Mountains, and be able to land troops and work their way up through Bulgaria and up into link up with the, um, the Balkans who were attacking Austria. So that was the plan. That was, as Winston Churchill called it, the soft underbelly of Europe. And, um, yeah, they, they did it, but this one man kind of pulled back and I guess it's fair on his part he just saw three ships going up in you know within half an hour of each other and he thought well how many more mines are there it's all very easy to sit back there with 2020 logic but so many lives were lost because of that decision on both sides so that was the forcing in the Dardanelles so the British decided to pull back and they were going to have to take the Gallipoli Peninsula from the Mediterranean side and work their way across the peninsula and knock out the guns from a, a, a land um, invasion. And that was the plan. And again, they could have 
easily done that. But unfortunately, they telegraphed their punch. The Turks had realised after the forcing of the Dardanelles that, you know, strategically this was a critical point and they needed to reinforce it. And also it didn't help that the uh, Royal Navy was sitting just offshore near um, where in plain sight the Turks could see them. So they knew that they were interested in the peninsula and consequently they reinforced it. And had they, if they, even if they were going to pull back, they could have pulled back out of sight and at it, but they farted around and and so many people lost their lives because of it. So, yes, it's as I said, it's very easy 2020 hindsight, but um, that's how history plays out. So, nearly a year later, the British had a expeditionary force, uh, mainly consisting of English, uh, French and a Australian division and a New Zealand division who were put together and they were called the Anzacs and the Anzacs were only in existence for the Gallipoli campaign. They weren't they weren't called the Anzacs when they went over into uh, France. They became the AIF. So the objective of the campaign was to secure the Gallipoli Peninsula and control the Dardanelles. Okay, so by that way, they could take Constantinople by defeating and thus knocking Turkey out of the war. This was essentially how they were going to help the Russians, and the Russians were taking a pizzling on all fronts. They they weren't organised. They had massive numbers, but unfortunately for them, their training was poor. They were just basically conscripting peasants and throwing them into the army, and they were being they had been absolutely mauled by the Germans um, on the Eastern Front. They were, the, the Germans only sent over a, a, a token force and they just absolutely mauled the Russians who just were chasing their own tail, essentially. So they decided that the 25th of April was the day for the invasion and the Anzacs were directed to the land north of the British and the French troops on Gallipoli. A lot of the French and the British, they landed down uh, at, at the base of the peninsula. And from memory, from the last episode, uh, the Gurkhas were mixed in with the, the, the British as well and they fought magnificently. Now, the Australians were north of them and they landed at what was to become known as Anzac Cove. Now, the Australian troops were, well, they were completely inexperienced. They were essentially, they were, they were civilians. They only had 303s. They, they had very few uh, heavy machine guns in support initially. They essentially just scrambled up the sides of what very quickly became steep, rugged and extremely ridged slopes. Uh, it was just a maze of broken ground. And the Turks were sitting up there waiting and they had magnificent views on the Australians and they just rained down fire from everywhere. Now, as the, the Anzacs advanced from the beach, the Turks sought to drive them back. And by the end of the first day, some Anzac commanders suggested evacuation. It was a hopeless situation. You just essentially think of it like a, 
like a, a large amphitheatre in which the Turks were sitting all around the top ridge and in and around at the bottom were the Australians who could not get up over the top of that ridge and they fought their way to the top of the ridge and all they could do when they got to the very top of it was to like dig in and that became pretty much the front line of the Australian defences and for the entire time there was very little change from that first day's advance. Maybe a, a few bits here and there sort of thing, but overall, um, it was a very, very static fight. Now, once they came into direct contact with the Turks, uh, the strategy very quickly came from taking territory to becoming a consolidation effort and uh, unfortunately they had very little in the way of engineering and trench supplies. However, the men built tunnels and trenches and under constant enemy fire and at close range, and we're talking between five to 15 meters, the, the, two, the two trenches uh, as they were being dug were <laughs> literally stones throw away from one another. Uh, Allied weapons and ammunition were not suited for this sort of combat. And when the enemy began lobbing grenades, the Australians didn't have grenades, so the best they could conjure up was uh, to make makeshift bombs from jam tins and fill them up with nails and explosives. Another invention that was improvised was the famous periscope rifle, which allowed soldiers to observe and fire at the enemy without having to expose themselves above the trench. I don't know if you've necessarily seen these articles but they're very very simple it's a 303 with a shaving mirror that's been split in two and a little bit of woodwork around it to support it to create a cleverly engineered view straight down over the uh, iron sights of the rifle so and they needed it because <laughs> you couldn't miss at that range because it was so close now, not long after the landing, the 14th Battalion was ordered to the front line to an area that would soon become called Courtney's Post, after the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel R.E. Courtney. Now, these posts were at no stage safe, and at any stage, it seemed likely that they would be overrun. Had that occurred, it would have been disastrous for the troops of the Anzac Cove, because if the Turks could move up onto the actual ridge themselves they had an unimpeded enfilade fire all the way down and the Australians would have had literally nowhere where they could have taken cover. The Turks would have been able to pour fire down from all directions and it would have been totally disastrous for Anzacs. On the 19th of May 1915 45,000 Turks were amassed behind the Turkish front line and ordered to drive the Allies into the sea. As I said, they had 45,000 Turks along the peninsula that they had drawn up in behind the uh, Turkish lines. And then on the 19th of May, wave after wave of Turkish soldiers launched themselves at their country's invaders. And approximately 3 a.m., on the 19th of May, a group of Turkish soldiers crept up to an exposed Courtney's post. And after bombing and throwing grenades and attacking the position, 
and killing two of the Australians and wounding two more, they captured 10 metres of this vital position. Now, I've put it in the references section. There's a small little video that explains the action. It uses a map and it also has some little animations to say who was where and it was very very helpful it helped me work out exactly what was going on but for the moment just think of the think of no man's land and look down like you're looking down on top of a map and the trench itself where Albert Jacker was was kind of like a it was a bit of a like a capital D if you like and the top left hand side of the D there was a fire step dug into it so it was a little bit more dug into the no man's land by about you know two meters thereabouts not very much but just just enough to give a, a bit of covering fire and when the Turks attacked they attacked along the front of the D and along the like the topmost uh, arch of the D sort of thing so they threw the bombs in they stunned and wounded and killed Australians. They climbed down into it and there was a considerable amount of Turks that were in there. Uh, and of course, Jacker was trapped in that little fire step. Now, acting Lance Corporal Albert Jacker was protected uh, from that fire step and he fired some shots back into the trench's rear wall. So he was essentially just putting his rifle around the corner and shooting as far back as he possibly could just to keep them back because there was nothing really stopping, stopping them from charging forward and uh, killing him as well. Now, however, this, this stopped the Turks and they couldn't really move forward because he was putting down a fairly good rate of fire and they didn't know what was around the corner so they knew he was there on that fire step but they didn't know what was waiting for him on the left hand side of the trench so, so to speak so if they'd run in to like kill him it's entirely possible that there could have been like six or seven Australian troops sitting there waiting for them so they couldn't get at him and he couldn't get at them now when all this had happened Lieutenant Boyle uh, ran up from the communications trench and he was looking directly at at Jacker and he could see that Jacker was pinned inside the fire step. He ran forward and but as he reached the corner of the left hand side of that trench so to speak he, he stuck his head around a little bit and he got shot in the ear and of course he he got quite badly wounded in the ear and bulletly took the whole ear off sort of thing. So he, he pulled back and he called for an officer uh, to take charge. Now, Lieutenant Hamilton clambered out of his trench and, and ran forward to assist. And as he got to that deadly corner, he stuck his head around and, and unfortunately was shot immediately in the head, uh, fatally wounding him and he fell back down to the trench. So there was Albert Jacker and he was caught in the and he was caught in the fire step. And the Turks were just around the corner. And of course there was multiple Turkish rifles trained on that corner and they were scanning for the slightest movement. Now another officer came up, Lieutenant Crabb. Now he saw the dead body of Lieutenant Hamilton laying on the ground. He'd, he'd seen um, 
the other lieutenant retiring for shot ear and Albert Jacker motioned to him to stop to not go any closer to the edge of the trench sort of thing obviously because if he stuck his head around he would have suffered the same fate as poor old Lieutenant Hamilton. Crabbe then pulled back a little and called for volunteers to help Albert Jacker and three of them came forward. Three, three privates just came up and Jacker then leapt to safety so he where the where the Turks were actually looking uh, for any movement, he jumped across that trench. So they were expecting somebody to come around from the left, and he jumped off the fire step and and threw himself down the, the communication trench. And he got away with it, and he wasn't shot. So he organised with Lieutenant Crabb. They got their three volunteers and they decided that they would uh, try and make an assault going around the corner. Now, by this stage of the game, obviously, the Turks had reloaded their rifles and they were waiting again. So, Chaka, once again, jumps across onto the fire step from the other side and and then another man tried to fight, fight, um, come past. Sorry. Another man tried to follow him onto the fire step but was immediately shot three times so he was very very lucky in that respect Jacker at this stage of the game realised this plan was not going to work and stopped the others from following he scrambled back jumped over the other side grabbed hold of the, the, the private and dragged him back now despite being shot three times the other soldier hadn't been killed and so he, he also retired. Jacker asked Crabbe to be allowed to make an attempt to retake the trench alone. He circled back down around the bottom. Now, as I said, remember that D. So you, you go to the bottom of the D and then it comes back around and he was going to approach from the other side. Now, the Turks couldn't come further down because there were troops that were had them pinned from the other side so they were essentially couldn't go anywhere both sides of the, the the trench was covered he came as close as he could to where where they were and then he got into an adjacent trench and hauled himself up into the darkness of no man's land and slivered across on his belly uh, where he waited and uh, so he was waiting in no man's land when he waited, dawn started to seep into the steel grey of the eastern horizon. And after a few more minutes, his position would be exposed to the Turks who were in the opposite trenches from the Turkish trenches. So he couldn't stay there for very much longer. At that point, his comrades decided to create a diversion with rifle fire and bombs. So where Lieutenant Hamilton had been killed... They started lobbing bombs, not, not grenades, but more of those uh, tin cans, rusty nails and what have you. And they, were th they threw them over the corner of the trench, into the front trench, so, so to speak. Now, neither of the two bombs actually landed inside the trench. They overshot, in fact, and they landed out in no man's land out near Jacker. However, not, not to be perturbed by this... Jacker jumped down into the crowded trench under the cover of the smoke and noise of the bombs. He shot five Turks, bayoneted two more 
and took another three prisoners. Another two were shot as they scrambled out of the trench and ran for their own trenches. For many long minutes, shouts, curses and cries punctuated by cracks of rifle fire and dull thuds of heavy blows came from that front trench to the communication trench until a terrible quiet descended on that section of trench. Jacker remained there, alone, until dawn finally came. Lieutenant Crabb deemed it safe to determine the outcome of the assault. He edged up to the corner and cautiously peered around. There was Jacker, sitting amidst Turkish and Australian dead, rifle pointing at the prisoners with an unlit cigarette in his mouth. Well, I got the beggars, sir, he said. Nineteen Turkish rifles were counted on the trench floor. On May the 20th, 1915, the following day, Jacker wrote these words in his diary. Great battle at 3am. Turks captured large portions of our trench. D Company called into the front line. Lieutenant Hamilton shot dead. I led a section of men and recaptured the trench. I bayoneted two Turks, shot five, took three prisoners and cleared the whole trench. I held the trench alone for 15 minutes against a heavy attack. Lieutenant Crabb informed me that I'd be recommended. For this remarkable act of courage, Jacker was awarded the VC, the Victoria Cross. The first to be awarded to any member of the AIF, King George V at Windsor Castle personally presented to Jacker on the 29th of September 1916. Now, I'll just read the actual citation itself. For the most conspicuous bravery on the night of the 19th to the 20th of May 1915 at Courtney's Post, Gallipoli, Lance Corporal Jacker, while holding a portion of the trench with four men, was heavily attacked when all except for himself were killed or wounded. The trench was rushed and occupied by seven Turks. Lance Corporal Jacker at once attacked them single-handedly and killed the whole party. Five by fire and two by bayonet. Instantly, Jacker became a national hero. He received a £500 reward. Now, there was a prize that had been put up when the Australian Anzacs went over and and a prominent Australian businessman, John Wren, had offered £5,000 for the first Victoria Cross that had been won. So it was, it was kind of a bit like a sporting event. His image was used on recruiting posters and magazine covers. On the 28th of August 1915, he was promoted corporal, then rose quickly becoming a company sergeant major in mid-November. A few weeks before Anzac was evacuated, back in Egypt, he passed through officer training school with high marks and on the 29th of April 1916 was commissioned second lieutenant. From the very start, hospital ships were anchored offshore at Gallipoli and makeshift ambulance marquees established down on the beaches of Anzac Cove. The wounded were also evacuated to hospitals and convalescent camps on the nearby Greek islands of Lemnos and Alexandria. Private John Simpson, Kirkpatrick, a stretcher bearer in the 3rd Australian Field Ambulance, became a legendary figure for his part in the tireless transporting of wounded men from the front line 
in Monash Valley down to Anzac Cove on the back of his little donkey. Often working under fire, he was eventually killed three weeks into his service. Australia suffered a total of 26,111 casualties during the campaign, with 8,141 men actually dying. The British commander of the Dardanelles campaign, General Sir Ian Hamilton, ordered a new offensive to take territory in August 1915. In the northern sector of the Anzac position, a British landing would also be made on the north of Anzac Cove at Suvla Bay. The aim was to claim Seribar Ridge from the Turks and then to take the Narrows. The Australian 1st Brigade made a diversionary attack at Lone Pine, a brutal battle that claimed more than 2,000 lives. It was, however, something of a success for the Australians. Fighting his infantry, the Australian Light Horse, however, also made a diversionary attack at the Neck. But as the men repeatedly charged, cover fire failed and the men were mown down. A further attack was made in the north at the hill at 971, but that too failed. And for people listening overseas, if you find the movie Gallipoli by Peter Weir, it actually gives a fairly good representation of the diversionary attack at the neck. Um, it's, it's relatively accurate, but yeah, it's more for giving yourself a sense of the terrain. Soon after the failed August offensive, Sir Charles Monroe replaced Sir Ian Hamilton in commanding the Allied forces. Taking stock of the situation, he deemed success at Gallipoli was unachievable. He recommended withdrawal, which was supported by Lord Kitchener and planned for December. Now, it was a carefully choreographed event in which several deceptions were enacted so that the Turks believed that the Allies were defending their territory rather than evacuating. On the 20th of December, the last of the Anzac troops withdrew from Gallipoli and returned to Egypt. The evacuation of, of Halis, where British and French troops were stationed, was completed on the 8th of January 1916. Fatalities at Gallipoli were great on both sides, not only through combat but also by disease spread through dysentery, flies, lice and an extremely poor diet. It has to be estimated that by July, 200 men a day on the Allied side were being evacuated, though the challenge of evacuation meant that many of the wounded never reached medical help in time. What I might do is I'm going to let Sam Neill talk a little bit about the commander of the Turks, and I'll leave it to you, Sam. Here we go. At Gallipoli... The Turks were extremely fortunate to be led by Kemal Ataturk, one of the great soldiers of all time. Before our invasion, to put spine in his men, he said these words, I'm not asking you to fight for your country, I'm commanding you to die for your country. And it is those formidable words that make these later words of Kemal's so much more poignant. They are words of reconciliation and they are meant for us. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives 
You are now lying in the soil of a friendly country, therefore rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the McMets to us, where they lie side by side here in this country of ours. You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. Ataturk, 1934. For the entirety of the Gallipoli campaign, the casualty lists are as follows. For Great Britain and Ireland, 21,250 died and 52,230 wounded. Australia, 8,709 died, 19,000 441 wounded. France, 10,000 died, 17,000 wounded. New Zealand, 2,779 died, 5,212 wounded. India and Nepal, 1,358 died. 3,421 wounded. Newfoundland, 49 died and 93 wounded. But for the Ottoman Empire, 86,692 died and 164,617 wounded for a total of 251,309. That concludes part one of this two-part episode on the Albert Jacker. Come back next time and we're off to France. See you then.
Welcome back to the Victoria Cross podcast. This week, we take a look at Albert Jacker and his exploits on the Western Front in Europe. Most servicemen and women are brave, but there is something special about holders of the Victoria Cross. They are modest men who, above all else, want to appear ordinary. But they are, of course, nothing of the sort. Many things have changed the face of warfare, but the nature of human bravery and raw courage remains as impressive now as it ever was. After evacuating from the Gallipoli Peninsula with questionable gains, save for holding down the Turkish troops, that had been kept pinned to the peninsula in defence. The Anzacs and the Allied troops were retrained, replenished and reinforced in preparation for the deployment to Western Europe, where the Germans, English and French troops had fought themselves down to a brutal stalemate. Lessons from the opening year and a half of fighting with shells, barbed wire and machine guns had taught them all the grimly literal meaning of the word deadlock. To break this, the generals led by Commander-in-Chief General Sir Douglas Haig put together a fresh offensive that they hoped would, with new tactics and massive artillery barrages, carry the day and allow the British and the French troops to finally break out and push through to mobile operations. Release the cavalry through to the enemy's rear, thus taking pressure off the French who were locked in a death struggle with the German army over the gas-stinking, moon-cratered mass grave that was Verdun, and it was nightmarishly devouring whole armies without any end in sight. The first day of the Battle of the Somme was the bloodiest day in the history of the British Army and one of the most infamous days of World War I. On the 1st of July 1916, the British forces suffered 57,470 casualties, including which 19,240 of those were fatalities. By the very nature of this podcast, we will revisit that terrible day at least nine times as we look at the VCs awarded for actions of astonishing valour. And for all of that, they gained just three square miles of territory. In late July 1916, 
the Australians fought their first action in the Battle of the Somme. At this point, the British strategy focused on the seizure of the ridge east of the village of Pozieres, from where an additional attack could be mounted on the German strongholds further north at Thiepval, which had failed to be taken as an objective during the British attacks on the opening day of the battle. By the time the Australians entered the Battle of the Somme, operations had been reduced to a series of attacks, aimed not so much at breaking through the German lines, but to capture key positions and the wearing down of the enemy, while the Allied armies raised themselves from the titanic struggle that they had just endured. The village of Pozieres on the albert Bapaume Road lay atop a ridge approximately in the centre of what was to be the British sector of the Somme battlefield. Close by the village is the highest point of the battlefield. Pozieres was a, an important German defensive position. The fortified village was an outpost to the second defensive trench system, which had become known to the British as the O.G, or it stood for Old German Lines. This German second line extended far beyond Mouquet Farm in the north, which ran behind Pozieres to the east, and then south, down and around towards the Byzantine Ridge and to the villages of Byzantine La Petite and Longval. On the 14th of July, during the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, the southern section of this German second line was captured by the British 4th Army, commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Henry Rawlinson, who presented with such a tantalising possibility of rolling up the German second line by turning north if he could get Pozieres to be captured. The British Commander-in-Chief, General Sir Douglas Haig, lacked the ammunition to immediately execute another broad front attack because they had just finished fighting two weeks with massive bombardments. And of course, the logistics at the time well, it took a little bit. They had to, first of all, they had to make more logistics because they, I think it was something like a million shells had been used uh, in the preparatory bombardments. Uh, now, he believed that Pozieres and Thiepval would become untenable for the Germans as the British continued their eastern momentum. Haig ordered Rawlinson to concentrate on the centres between Highwood, Highwood and Deville wood as well as the villages of Goulimont and Grinchy. I'm sure people are having a good laugh at the my uh, attempts at the French here <laughs> but bear with me. The plan was to maintain pressure whereby taking Pozieres by a steady methodical step-by-step -step advance between the 13th and the 17th of July. Now British 4th Army had made four tightly contained attacks against Pozieres with no success and extremely high casualties. In this period, the beautiful village that had been subjected to the heavy bombardment was utterly destroyed and reduced to shattered rubble. For two occasions, the attacking infantry got into the trench which looped south and west of the village outskirts. These defences were simply known as the Pozieres Trench but both attempts were repulsed. Attempts to get east of the village by advancing up the old German lines also failed. Rawlinson planned to deliver another attack, 
on the broad front of the 18th of July involving six divisions between the Albert Bopom Road in the north of Gulliamore, which was to the south. Haig decided to transfer responsibility of the Pozieres section to the Reserve Army of Lieutenant General Hubert Goff, which had been holding the line north of the road since shortly after the opening of the offensive on the 1st of July. The attack was postponed until the night of the 22nd and the 23rd. To Goff's army, three Australian divisions of the 1st Anzac Corps were attached, which began moving from the Amtiers sector. The Australian 1st Division reached Albert on the 18th of July, and despite the postponement of the offensive, Goff, who had a reputation of being a thruster, and when you consider some of the generals involved in all of this, to have a reputation as a thruster is a bit of a scary prospect. Anyway, he told the division's commander, Major General Harold Walker, I want you to go in and attack Pozieres tomorrow night. Walker, an experienced English officer who had led the division since Gallipoli, would have none of it and insisted that he attack only after adequate preparation. Consequently, the attack of Pozieres once more fell in line with the 4th Army attack on the 22nd to the 23rd of July. The plan called for the Australian 1st Division to attack Pozieres from the south, advancing in three stages, half an hour apart, while north of the Albert Bompole Road and the 48th South Midland Division 10 Corps. They would attack the German trenches west of the village, the village and the surrounding area were defended by elements of the 117th Division. Early on the 22nd of July, the Australian 9th Battalion attempted to approve its position by advancing up the old German lines towards the road, but was also repulsed. The preparation for the attack involved a thorough bombardment of the village and the old German lines lasting several days. The bombardment included phosgene gas and tear gas. The infantry was scheduled to attack at 12.30am on the 23rd of July with the Australian 1st and 3rd Brigades. The infantry crept into no man's land, close behind the bombardment, and when it lifted, the German trenches were rushed. The first stage took the Pozieres Trench that ringed the village to the south. The second stage saw the Australian advance to the edge of the village amongst what remained of the back gardens of the houses lining the Albert Bompole Road. The third stage brought the line to the Albert Bompole Road. The few survivors from the German garrison retreated to the northern edge of the village or into the actual old German lines themselves to the east. It was also intended that the old German lines would be captured as far as the road, but here the Australians fell short, partly due to strong resistance from the German defenders in very deep dugouts and machine gun nests, and partly it was due to the confusion of a night attack on a featureless terrain. The weeks of bombardment had reduced the ridge to a field of craters, and it was virtually impossible to distinguish where a trench line had run. The failure to take the 
old German lines made the eastern end of Pozieres vulnerable and so the Australians formed the flank short of their objective. On the western edge of the village, the Australians captured a German bunker known as Gibraltar. During the 23rd of July, some Australians went prospecting across the road, captured a number of Germans with minimal effort and occupied more of the village. That night, the 8th Battalion of the Australian 2nd Brigade, which had been in reserve, moved up and secured the rest of the village. The attack of the 48th Division on the German trenches west of Pozieres achieved some success, but the main attack of the 4th Army between the Pozieres and Goulimont was a costly failure. Now, I read out all of that because I've included a map and so people can follow it on their map. Now, if you're just listing and you're in a car or something like that, essentially, how can I describe this? The line was south of Pozieres and it, it's, it just made a great big salient through Pozieres and out the other side of it, so to speak. And it was about two miles forward, sort of. It was just like a big bubble in the German lines. It all sounds rather confusing, but it was just a large circular well, I guess pimple, you know, along the line front. And, uh, yeah, so everybody who was inside that pimple, they were all quite vulnerable to flank attacks and the Germans were not above doing pincer attacks and coordinated pincer attacks, even in the First World War. Success on the Somme came at a cost, which at times seemed to surpass the cost of failure. And for the Australians, Pozieres was just such a case. As a consequence of being the sole British gain on the 23rd of July, Pozieres also became a focus of attention for the Germans. As a critical element of their defensive system, the German command ordered that it be retaken at all costs. Three attempts were made on the 23rd of July, but each was broken up by British artillery or swept away by machine gun fire. Communication was extremely difficult for the Germans, as it had been for the British, and it was not until 7 o'clock a.m. of the 24th of July that they discovered that Pozieres had in fact been captured. With British activity now declining elsewhere on the front, the German Four Corps, opposite Pozieres, was able to concentrate most of its artillery against the village and its approaches. Initially, the bombardment was methodical and relentless, without being intense. The western approach to the village, which was led from Casualty Corner near the head of Sausage Valley, received such a concentration of shell fire that it was thereafter known as Dead Man's Road. You just have to imagine the carnage for, for these areas that had such grim names attached to them. The German bombardment intensified on the 25th of July in preparation for another counter-attack. The German 9 Corps relieved 4 Corps and the commander cancelled the planned counterattack, choosing instead to concentrate on the defences of the old German lines, which were the next objective of the British. The bombardment reached a climax on the 26th of July and by 5pm the Australians, believing an attack was imminent, appealed for a counter barrage. The artillery of the 1st Anzac Corps and 2nd Corps and the guns of the two neighbouring British corps replied. This in turn led the Germans to believe the Australians were, were preparing to attack and so they increased their fire yet again. 
and all it was doing was just one side would ratchet up the intensity of fire from the other side. It was not until the midnight that the shelling subsided. Now, at its peak, the German bombardment of Poziers was the equal of anything yet experienced on the Western Front and had far surpassed the worst shelling previously endured by the Australian Division. The Australian 1st Division suffered 5,285 casualties on its first tour of Poziers when the survivors were relieved on the 27th of July, one observer said. They looked like men who had been in hell, drawn and haggard and so dazed that they appeared to be walking in a dream and their eyes looked glassy and starey. EJ Rule. The Australian 1st Brigade managed to capture the ridge where the windmill had once stood, and the German commander issued an order that it was to be retaken at any price. The salient caused by the 1st Brigade's advance meant that the men holding Poziers could be shelled from three sides simultaneously. Conditions were so grim that Rule, in his book Jacker's Mob, records how he dumped his blankets in disgust on, on the march in when a member of the vacating 28th Battalion said over his shoulder, you'll be lucky if you ever use that blanket again. On the 6th of August 1916, the night of the 14th Battalion's arrival, the German bombardment was described by the historian C.W. Bean, who was there on hand to witness it, as the crowning bombardment of the whole series. And Rule observed that, for continuing shelling this night, stands alone in all that I've endured. While Jacker's company commander preferred the safety of a deep dugout 300 yards behind the lines, Jacker, now a second lieutenant in the command of a platoon, ordered his men to take shelter in the old German dugout on the front line. As dawn broke after a night of earth-shattering shelling, the men underground only became aware that an enemy attack had swept overhead and now they were 200 metres behind the enemy lines when a passing German rolled a bomb down into the stairs of Jacker's dugout. The concussion in the narrow confines of their shelter was tremendous, but Jacker was the first to recover. He immediately dashed to the surface, revolver in hand. The milling Germans he saw from the mouth of the dugout were the second line of a successful assault. A nearby group of them were escorting to the rear 42 prisoners from the Australian 48th Battalion. Only seven men from Jacker's platoon had recovered from the blast. While many may have considered surrender a reasonable option in these circumstances, Jacker began thinking about how he and his party could fight their way back to the Australian lines. After weighing the options, he made a cold-blooded decision to launch his seven men in an attack on the 60 or so Germans who were there. No sooner had they jumped out than two of Jacker's men were killed and every other man was hit but they charged on and belayed the Germans with fire and bayonet. Jacker himself was hit seven times. Each time he fell to the ground, he jumped back up again like a prize fighter and ran on. And emptying his revolver, he picked up a rifle, bayoneted and accounted personally 
for some 12 or more of the enemy. Two more of Jacker's men were killed before the engagement concluded, but the captured men of the 48th Battalion took heart from the assault and turned on their captors. Men from the neighbouring platoons were also drawn into the melee. With the result, the Germans surrendered and the ridge which had been lost was retaken. Rule, who was then a sergeant, had watched the fighting through his field glasses and asked a passing stretcher bearer, Who have you got there? The stretcher bearer replied, I don't know, but I've got the bravest man in the Aussie army that is on the stretcher just ahead. It's Bert Jacker. He's knocked about dreadfully. Here's an account from Bill Jacker who came up and saw Albert Jacker as he was being loaded into the ambulance. And this is just his memories. Um, This is Bill Jacker at the very end of his life for this recording. And... um, This is what he had to say about it. And I found him eventually at the advanced first aid post in Sausage Gully. He was just about to be loaded into the ambulance. I've never seen anybody look so terrible in my life. He'd been shot through the nose. In fact, he'd be, it looked as though he'd been shot everywhere. His face, all through the years, when I have thought of it, I've thought of Albert's face as being a lump of lard. It was absolutely bloodless. And I thought, by Jove, you've had it, Albert. I won't. I won't, (coughs) won't see you again. Jacker's efforts bought him the military cross. A high honour but one which many felt understated the magnitude of his achievement on that day and in that terrible place. Amongst those of that opinion were Rural, Bean and Jacker himself. Jacker, while recovering from the dreadful wounds he had sustained, stated that what he did at Poziers was six times more demanding than his exploits at Gallipoli. Any reasonable comparison of the two events would have to reach the same conclusion. And even when compared to the five VCs which were won by Australians in and around Poziers, Jacker's actions remains exceptional. Certainly it is unusual for a bar to be given to a VC. Dr Ian Grant notes the irony of the fact that the only bar awarded to a VC in the Great War was won in another part of the battlefield on the very next day by Captain N.G. Chavez of the Royal Army Medical Corps. Nevertheless, it does seem clear that in Jacker's case, an error occurred, especially when someone as cautious and meticulous as C.E.W. Bean, the greatest single expert on the history of the first AIF, present or past, wrote that Jacker's Poziers action stands as the most dramatic and effective act of individual audacity in the history of the AIF. 
I'd like to just play you uh, an extract from an interview um, by Michael Lewinsky, on who was he's a very well-known author who's written a couple of incredible books, uh, Hard Jacker and The Return of the Gallipoli Legend, and I cannot recommend them enough. Uh, so if you can get a hold of them, that'd be great. And what he is is he's talking here about the fact that Jacker was awarded a military cross rather than a VC for this action, and he just puts it into perspective here, I think, far better than I can because he's just got the entire action playing out in his head and he's obviously given a great deal of thought. So here it is. I think that, um, uh, you know, by now, Jacker was speaking up for the men. He, uh, he obviously didn't have a, a very good relationship with his commanding, uh, with his CO, uh, Colonel Dare, um, Colonel Charles Dare. Um, and um, the other thing is that, um, you know, it was just a confusion of the battle as well. Everybody's knocked out. Jacker's knocked out. Um, people that saw it, um, uh, might not be around, um, and uh, we do know that uh, Jacker's friend Ted Rule, uh, he uh, walked into the um, CO's office at one stage, and he, he just saw his notepad and just lifted it up and saw the text of the recommendation, uh, because Ted had actually watched it himself. He could see the silhouettes of a uh, hundred and something, you know, 120 or 30 men going at each other on, on the ridge. Uh, and and Jacker's uh, incredible fight there, where it said that, you know, he, he may have accounted for a dozen to 15 uh, Germans single-handedly. Um, so Ted had, had watched this, and he was astonished to find that the recommendation that was being put forward uh, just downgraded what Jacker had done. Um, and uh, had not actually, hadn't, hadn't delved into it enough to find out uh, what it had done. Because he, for example, he said, you know, Jacker led his platoon uh, in against the Germans. And uh, that made it sound like he had 33 men. Uh, well, no, not 33, they had about 50. That's modern platoons. In those days, you had, had about 50, 55 men in a platoon. Um, so it made it sound like he had a whole group of people with him, whereas actually it was a very small group of people that he had, and his um, bravery was enormous. And, um, and it was something that later on uh, was commented on by the official historian, um, uh, Charles Bean, who, um, who said that uh, it was the most uh, uh, audacious and successful action of any um, individual action of the AIF during World War One. So uh, effectively, if you took the standard of VCs from what Jacker did at Pozier uh, and awarded that VC to Jacker and said nothing below that, what he was saying was that no one else would have got a VC in World War One. So to have no VC awarded on military cross awarded in, in those circumstances uh, was um, was an outrage. The entire platoon was wounded. Jacker seriously in the neck and in the shoulder. He was sent to London Hospital 
On the 8th of September, London newspapers carried reports of his death, but Bert Jacker was far from done for. Albert Jacker's military career did not, however, end there. He spent a long period of convalescence in England where he faced a personal and secret struggle with shattered nerves. Despite the strain he was under, he refused an offer to go back to Australia to campaign in favour of conscription at the forthcoming referendum. He did not want a free ride, he said, just because he had a VC. He felt his place was with the battalion and rejoined it in December to find a new and outstanding commander in charge. General Goff had planned to thrust a wedge behind the German fortress of Thiepval. Having secured Pozieres and the neighbouring section of the old German lines, the reserve army attacked northwards along the ridge towards the German strong point of, of Macquar Farm, which protected the rear of Thiepval. First Anzac Corps would carry the advance along the ridge, and Second Corps would keep in line on the left, systematically reducing the Thiepval salient. Initially, the task fell to the 4th Australian Division, which had already suffered over a thousand casualties, resisting the final German counter-attack, but both the Australian 1st and 2nd Divisions would be called on again, followed once more by the 4th Division. When the Australian ordeal on Pozieres Ridge was over in September, they were replaced by the Canadian Corps, who held the sector for the remainder of the battle. The old German lines east of the village became the Canadian start line for the, for the Battle of Fleurs Corselet. After the battle, it became apparent that General Birdwood had lost much of his Gallipoli popularity through his failure to oppose Goff's impetuous desire for quick results and his lack of thought at Pozieres. Soon after, Australian troops rejected his personal appeal for the in introduction of conscription. Voting against this recommendation largely because of their reluctance to see additional men subjected to the horrors of the piecemeal attacks. The Australians had suffered as many losses in the Battle of Pozieres in the six weeks as they had had in the entire Gallipoli campaign. Wilfred Miles, an official historian, praised the initiative shown by the small subunits of men in clearing the Germans from positions in the village but at the same time attributed much of the severity of the losses to the Australian inexperience and their reckless daring. Albert Jacker had been promoted lieutenant on the 18th of August, rejoined his unit in November and was promoted captain on the 15th of March 1917. He was appointed the 14th Battalion's Intelligence Officer. Jacker's bar to his military cross at Bully Corps on the 8th of April 1917, Albert Jacker was promoted lieutenant on the 18th of August. He rejoined his unit in November and was promoted captain on the 15th of March 1917 and appointed the 14th Battalion's intelligence officer. Jacker received his bar for his military cross at Bully Corps on the 8th of April 1917. The tenure of Lieutenant John Peck heralded in a golden age for Jacker and the 14th Battalion during that time, Jacker was promoted to captain, filled the role of sports officer and then intelligence officer. In Peck, Jacker found at last a superior whom he truly admired. Moreover, Peck was shrewd enough and forceful enough to manage someone as headstrong as Jacker. The two began, the two began 
a harmonious and profitable relationship, which only ended when Peck's promotion to staff position in Monash's 3rd Division in May 1917. Now, during this time, the 14th Battalion was involved in the 1st Bully Corps, one of the most awesome and tragic battles involving Australians on the Western Front. This was a frontal assault on the Hindenburg Line, which was part of a general British effort to divert attention from the French offensive at Sizions and Reims. It coincided with the British onslaught at Arras and the Canadian attack on Vimy Ridge. Like most similar plans, it did not achieve its objective, but on this occasion, new twists were added to the disaster with the absence of the usual intensive wire-cutting bombardment, the use of 12 untried tanks and an abortive attack the previous night, which served only to provide clear warning to the Germans of what they could expect the next night. Now, about two hours prior to this attack, most of the men already lying out in the snow on their jumping-off positions. Now, perhaps I should explain jumping off positions to people who aren't necessarily in the military. What they would do is they would go out into the during the night and uh, some intelligence officers like Jacker and others would go forward to where they thought that the line should be and they would put down a white stripe over the field so that the soldiers, when they moved out onto no man's land, could slowly walk across it until they came across a very long white piece of cloth and then they knew that they were at their jump off point and they'd simply lay down there and they'd wait until the order was given to advance. So that's a jump off line. The battalion intelligence officer Bert Jacker was crawling about in no man's land when he spied a German officer and an enlisted man who had a clear view of the assembled troops. Jacker raised his service revolver to shoot but it misfired. Now just imagine yourself in this situation. Jacker raised his service revolver to shoot, but it misfired. Then he leapt at the two, captured both of them, and led them back to the Australian line single-handed. After a similar sortie the night before, Jacker had seen the German wire had not been cut by the artillery and expressed his opinion to Brigadier General Brand that it was pure murder to attempt the operation. His advice, of course, was not heeded, and his prediction proved sadly accurate. Despite great heroism and superhuman efforts, the attack was a bitter failure and all but annihilated some of the finest fighting units in the AIF. In the aftermath of the battle, Jacker prepared a report on the use of tanks, which Major General Elliot had some years later described as brilliant and which General John Monash appears to have illicitly consulted in while he prepared for the successful Battle of Hamel. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Elliot also noted in that report, Jacker had committed the unforgivable offence of criticising a superior officer, hence breaching the code of Freemasonry, which protected senior officers of the regular army. As a result, General Birdwood ordered that Jacker's report should be expunged from the records of the AIF and that Jacker himself from there, that point onwards should be systematically ignored both in regard to decorations and promotions. Lieutenant Colonel Peck, 
submitted a detailed account of Jacker's action in No Man's Land in the hours before the attack. It was passed on unchanged from the brigade with the recommendation that a VC was in order. In the end, Jacker received a bar for his military cross. VCs are rarely awarded where enterprises failed. C.E.W. Bean wrote, Everyone knows the facts, knows that Jacker earned the Victoria Cross three times, and after the war, it is not for a historian to say, but in the case of Albert Jacker, something clearly went wrong. Albert Jacker should have been the most decorated soldier in the AOF. Now, according to Jacker's biographer, Dr. Ian Grant, Ironically, although Jacker clearly went on to perform greater deeds of valour, his superiors were determined to deny him further recognition. No doubt an earlier charge of insubordination, which been made against him, said something of Jacker's outspoken nature. And um, I'm just remembering back now to the first episode that we did, when he was charged in Egypt by the sergeant. And (laughs) I imagine that 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 is probably what this is referring to. Despite serving with distinction through the whole of the war in the frontline unit, withdrawing only during periods of recuperation from wounds and gassing, Jack arose no higher than the rank of captain. He was clearly a man confident of his own abilities and was not one to respect badges of rank for their own sake. This was no doubt intimidating to many of his superiors, whose own standards of personal conduct would be unlikely to match Jacker's. Jacker also was one of the lost breed of egalitarians who inhabited the ranks of the first AIF in large numbers. He was intensely popular with his men, even as an officer, He continued to settle disputes in ranks by administering clouts and punches to the chin for uh, people who stepped out of line. That this for Jacker was a fairly safe way of settling matters and would not, he seemed to think, would have worked as a general principle. But it worked for Jacker. Certainly there was some suspicion at the closeness between Jacker and his men, but it appears that Jacker's greatest failing in the eyes of the military hierarchy and in his later life, was an inability or unwillingness to compromise his high personal standards of honesty and integrity and play the political game. His friend and later brother officer, E.J. Rule, wrote that Jacker was not one who painted the lily. Had he been more of a diplomat and less of a pugilist, it's likely that Albert Jacker would have finished the war in some position higher than captain and with at least a VC and bar not the single VC with military cross and bar that he was awarded. As time went on, it became more and more clear to Jacker that he was not to receive any further promotion. Some have speculated that the authorities feared that the headstrong Jacker would be even more difficult to control if given high rank. Knowledge of this seems to have made Jacker even more outspoken, and even though he was only a captain, he clashed spectacularly several times with his brigadier. This happens so often, I'm just breaking away from the script here for a moment. It's so often, particularly when you've got a hierarchy in the army and you've got somebody by either privilege or or birth has been given a high rank and they come up against uh, 
soldiers who have been in it from the very start. And it wasn't just with Albert Jacob, but this is a very stark example. And they're just genuinely intimidated by these people because like, they're looking straight at somebody who is quite simply better than them. They know it. The soldier themselves knows it. And consequently, they cannot... They're not big enough people to acknowledge that fact. I mean, you can have rank, but, yeah, maybe my own prejudices are coming through here. But <laughs> maybe it's an Australian thing. I don't know. But, yes, I, I always struggle with that one. When you come up, you know, when there's a little person in with a little bit of power, they can be quite problematic to everybody else around them. A number of these clashes are reported in Rule's book, on one occasion, when a promised leave was cancelled, Jacker interrupted Brand's address to the full parade of the 14th Battalion officers to protest loudly. Hello, Jacker, said Brand. What's wrong with you? Have you got your wind up? Jacker replied, I reckon it's a damn disgrace, and gave forth fearlessly with his reasons for so thinking. On another occasion... Every officer in the 14th Battalion wrote a letter requesting a transfer out of the Brand's command, and in the discussions that followed, and I use the discussions with air quotes, Jacker was threatened with arrest. Despite their stormy relationship, Brand recognised the fighting qualities of his subordinate, in principle at least, if not in action. In the Battle of Polygon Wood, in the Ypres sector, where the new battalion commander was conspicuously absent, Jacob became the de facto leader, coordinating and adjusting the attack, which was so successful that it prompted Brand to send a note of congratulations. Congratulations, Jacker. I have recommended you for the DSO. The DSO was, however, not forthcoming, and nor was any recommendation, as it seems. Brand realised that recognising Jacker's role would have meant acknowledging the absence of the battalion commander. In the period after this battle, Jacker engaged the Germans in a personal war, which found him out patrolling no man's land, alone and with small parties on many nights. Lieutenant Colonel Smith was later gassed, and although his wounds were not serious, they gave Brand the excuse he needed to rid himself of a liability. The new CO, Lieutenant Colonel Crowther, recognised Jacker's capabilities and recommended him for training, which seemed to suggest the possibility of further promotion. Accordingly, Jacker spent most of the month of April 1918 in an army school of instruction and had been back with his men in D Company only for a few days when, on the 15th of May 1918, Jacker was badly gassed, and either a bullet or a piece of shrapnel passed through his trachea. He was evacuated to number 20 casualty clearing station, and it was thought at the time that he would not recover. Well, we've all heard these words before. Although he eventually recovered from the gassing, it marked the end of his active combat duty. When he was sent, after this, he was sent to Britain for two operations and a long recuperative period. He returned to Australia on the 6th of September 1919 when he was repatriated home. He embarked for Australia on board the Euripides. A large crowd, including the Governor-General, greeted the ship 
where it had berthed at Melbourne, and a convoy of 85 cars with Jacker at its head drove to the town hall where men from the 14th Battalion welcomed their famous comrade. He was demobilised in January 1920, shortly after, shortly after his return, Jacker, R.O. Roxburgh and E. Edmonds, both former members of the 14th Battalion, established the electrical goods importing and exporting business. Roxburgh, Jacker and Co. Proprietary Limited. Jacker contributed £700 to the firm's paid-up capital. The company's other director were John Wren and his associate Dick Lean. While Wren's brother Arthur held over three-quarters of the company's shares. In 1923, the business name was altered to Jacker Edmonds & Co. when Roxburgh withdrew. On the 17th of January 1921 at St Mary's Catholic Church in St Kilda, Jacker had married Frances Veronica Carey, a typist from his office. They settled at St Kilda and later adopted a daughter, in September 1929, Jacker was elected to the St Kilda Council and became the mayor a year later. He devoted most of his energies on council to assisting the unemployed. His own business flourished until 1929 when the Scullin government increased import tariffs and the company went into voluntary liquidation in September 1930. It was rumoured that the company's difficulties stemmed in part from Wren removing his support after Jacker refused to follow his wishes. <laughs> it's a familiar theme. Jacker then became a commercial traveller with the Anglo-Dominion Soap Company. He fell ill, entered Caulfield Military Hospital on the 18th of December 1931 and died on the 17th of January 1932 of chronic trench nephritis. Now, this is caused by what is called the Hantavirus, Uh, which is caused by the exposure to rodents. And this is one of the untold uh, stories of the First World War because there were so many rodents out on the front. A lot of soldiers uh, fell prey to this particular virus and they didn't really uh, know how to deal with it at the time. So there was quite a lot of men walking around with the virus inside their system and when it activated... Um, it, it could kill them like a year later, five years later in, or ten years later in this case. Nearly 6,000 people filed past his coffin when it lay in state at Anzac House. The funeral procession, led by over a thousand returned soldiers flanked by thousands of onlookers, made its way to St Kilda Cemetery where he was buried with full military honours Eight Victoria Cross winners were his pallbearers. The nation was seized with a sense of shock and loss. They gave him a fitting funeral with full military honours. Melbourne came to a halt as dense crowds lined the city streets and the entire length of St Kilda Road. I remember Jacker's funeral. I was one of the pallbearers with other VC members 
And as we marched along, alongside the casket, conscious of what a great Australian we were honouring that day. That was the voice of William Joint, VC. And following next is Percy Bland of the 14th Battalion, one of Jack's friends. I remember the day Jack had died. I was very sad and keen to go to the funeral. And a job to get off, but got off eventually. And felt very proud to be one of the 40th men able to attend the funeral. Although it was a very, very sad day for us all. Uh, we went along St Kilda Road in a four deep and assembled at the grave. I would say hundreds around the grave where he was buried and I felt very, very upset, very proud and, and, and disappointed to think we'd lost Jacker. At his funeral, Bert Jacker was described as Australia's greatest frontline soldier. Few would challenge this assessment. Bean and his men of the 14th Battalion, Jacker's mob, shared the belief that he'd earned three VCs. He may have risen higher in the AIF, but his blunt, straightforward manner frequently annoyed his superiors. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said, recalls one friend. As an officer, he invariably won respect by his example. It was claimed that he preferred to punch an offender rather than place him on a charge. His method could not have been generally adopted in the AIF without disaster. Being noted, nevertheless, Jacker seemed to epitomise the Anzac creed of mateship, bravery, fairness and the absence of pretentiousness. Many sought to exploit his fame. In 1916 and 1918, he spurned offers from Prime Minister Hughes to return to Australia and assist with the recruiting campaigns. His name was also used by Sir Keith Murdoch in the 1916 conscription referendum. His father promptly stated publicly that Bert had never declared himself in favour of conscription. The anti-conscriptionists made much of this denial, but on balance, it seemed probable that Jack did support conscription. His standing remained so high that a memorial plaque and sculpture for his grave was paid for by public subscription, while £1,195 was raised towards buying his widow a house. His portrait by G.J. Coates is in the Australian War Memorial. Well, thank you for your patience for getting through that, because <laughs> it was quite dense, wasn't it? Um, the only reason I put so much of the meticulous detail in on that one sort of thing was there's a lot of people in at least in Australia who have probably heard of the word posiers but didn't actually know what had happened there and I just thought if I could stick all that stuff in there and then we could drill down on his action uh, in that uh, it might serve two purposes and I've included a map of the posiers battlefield sort of thing so that people can have a look at it, listen to the podcasts, and then try and trace it out on the map themselves and reconstruct it in their own mind. And I find that's often the, the best way to try and work these these things out because putting these battles together is an extremely confusing thing and I imagine that's why it's left to experts. And I'm certainly no expert. 
Uh, I do this purely for the love of it and not because I'm paid or anything like that. Albert Jacker. Yeah. I didn't know an awful lot about him uh, when I first put him together. I'd heard the name um, and people think that he's no longer famous, but I think his name still resonates, at least amongst military circles. He's more impressive than I thought he was going to be. And like we've done two stories of people who are extraordinarily impressive. And I don't want to get caught up in nationalistic admiration or anything like that. But just as a man, he reminds me of... I've I've met people like what is described here and that they are very, very, very capable people in their own way. And, you know, they can put their hands to pretty much anything that they apply themselves to. And most people around them generally aren't, certainly not as capable as them. And it puts them on the defensive, in particular if they're above them. And I don't think this could have played out any other way. I'm surprised, actually, that he got as far as captain, even though his exploits were extraordinary. But I just imagine, I think he was very lucky in some respects that he had gone as far as he had until he came up against one of these individuals that are so intimidated but anyway food for thought lessons we can learn from other people's lives now next week uh actually by the time i put this out it will be the one year anniversary of the death of bill speakman now some of you will know who bill speakman is but he won a vc in the korean war And I thought it would be a good idea to go from the First World War to the Korean War. And we'll leave the Second World War um, where it is. And the reason I'm doing that is because in some respects the Korean and the First World War are are quite similar in their structure. Both were defensive affairs and there was a lot of trench warfare used in both. So it won't be a, a... big change in that respect but I've just done a little bit of reading on the man and I think I think you'll agree with me that it was an extraordinary action that he uh, had carried out so okay that's that's Bill Speakman next week and we'll see you then bye Then they turned all their faces away And so now, every April, I sit on my porch And I watch the parade pass before me And I see my old comrades, how proudly they march Reviving old dreams of past glory and the old men march slowly, all bones stiff and sore. They're tired old heroes from a forgotten war. And the young people ask, what are they marching for? And I ask myself the same question. But the band 
lies waltzing Matilda, and the old men still answer the call. But as year follows year, more old men disappear. Someday, no one will march there at all. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda, who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me? And their ghosts may be heard as they march by that billabong. Who'll come a waltzing Matilda with me?